Damariscotta is a small town in mid-coastal Maine. Its population is around 1,300 people, kind of place where everyone knows everyone. Even though it tends to be a popular tourist destination, Damariscotta isn't flashy. The main street is dotted with small businesses, many of which have been owned by families for generations. S. Fernal's Country Store is one of them. It's as much a community hangout as it is a business. The kitschy country store sells old-fashioned penny candy and nostalgic toys. The counter slings breakfast and lunch sandwiches to order. There's locally roasted coffee and baked goods from scratch and ice cream. I grew up pretty much just sitting on the ice cream counter, (laughs) you know, talking to customers and and just kind of hanging out. A number of folks, mostly in their, you know, older age, come in and they have coffee and they have, you know, breakfast and they talk for like two hours. This is Sumner Richards IV. He and his wife are the second generation owners of S. Fernald's, which was named after Sumner's grandfather and started by Sumner's parents, who are still around. My, my father and his friends come by and they, they jam like in the corner of the store in the morning and then my mom still works the counter. She's actually at the window today. To run their seven-day operation, S. Fernald's usually employs about 20 people at most during the summer months. Sumner's mother will often take shifts working the counter, but now she's working her shifts out of necessity. She's part of a skeleton crew to keep the family business from closing forever. It's just like there's no way we can keep this place clean and safe. Our, our clientele, our, our neighbors, you know, in a small town, you, you know everybody. So it was one of those things where like we, you know, it was, that was the most panicked I probably was, was that first week when everything just kind of, the sky fell. Governor Mills has declared all non-essential businesses closed due to COVID-19 concerns. And uh, my wife and I just looked at each other and we're like, we, we can't do this. We're closing tonight, this is it. While many Mainers are out of work for now, some small business owners are worried they might never be able to hire them back. There's, there's a lot of hard days and a lot of hard nights. We've gone for 30 years, and, you know, we're just trying to hold steady. S. Fernald's was closed for nearly three months, and they temporarily laid off all their employees. During the time their doors were closed, like so many small businesses, they tried to figure out a plan to financially outlast the pandemic. In that time, we did apply for around the first round of PPP. Sumner and his wife Rosie started filling out the Paycheck Protection Program loan application, doing the math to figure out how much they needed to request just to survive. So basically the way we were told to apply for the PPP loan was it was meant to carry us for two months. So we looked at our expenses, we looked at payroll, we looked at our utilities, our rent, you know, all all the basics, you know, nothing much beyond that. We came up with a magic number, and that's what we applied for. It's important to get into small business owners' state of mind when thinking about loans. When you're just a small operation, taking out loan money can really induce anxiety during uncertain economic times, particularly when you're not sure how much of the loan is going to be forgiven, as was, and still is, the case with the PPP. That's the scariest thing is obviously we could take out loans, but with small businesses, your gross profit is so small anyways that when you start stacking uh, loan payments on top of that and whatever else, I mean, you're really just, you're cutting yourself for the next 20, 30 years. 
So Sumner and his wife applied for just the amount they needed to keep them afloat for a few months before they could safely reopen. The Paycheck Protection Program was co-written by Maine's own Republican Senator Susan Collins, and it was signed into law as a means for small businesses with fewer than 500 employees to pay their workers and keep operations running. I rise today to introduce legislation to strengthen the Paycheck Protection Program, which has proven to be such an important lifeline to America's small businesses and their employees during this pandemic. But a loophole written into the program allowed for several major chains to receive millions of dollars in PPP loans from the same finite bucket of money. You went there to begin with. I mean, you're a $1.7 billion market cap company with more than $100 million in cash reserves. Why did you think that you wanted to qualify for a small business loan to begin with? We thought that people would self-select appropriately. And unfortunately, there were a number of companies that were high profile that took the loans, and I publicly came out against that. These loans, which made up a $349 billion relief effort, were exhausted after just two weeks. Midsummer, that that all dried up for us and, and most everyone elsewhere. Big companies got huge slices, leaving crumbs for small businesses who followed the strictest of rules. And that brings us to another point about the PPP. There were a lot of on-the-fly rule changes. For example, some businesses had to use their loans within eight weeks, while others who waited longer to apply got 24 weeks to use their loan money. And the portion of the loan required to be used for paying employees was reduced by 15% in the middle of loan applications. Maybe these don't sound like a big deal, but for small businesses, a matter of weeks and payroll costs make all the difference. Some places did it differently. And I'm not sure if that's because someone gave them a nod and a wink or if it's just because they did it differently anyways. Some places did it differently. Some places had a different set of rules. Or some places didn't have rules at all and were allowed to oversee their own loan eligibility. Other places broke the rules entirely. This raises a bigger question. How could large companies with Wall Street connections come to receive this sort of aid without any meaningful oversight? How is it that there's one set of rules for Main Street and another for Wall Street? Hope is dwindling for small business owners who are closing their doors for good. And for business owners trying to hang on, they are struggling to get assistance from the federal I'm Elliot Williams, and this is Made to Fail. We have to do it. It's something that we must do because we really just can't close. We've got a new report that says over 1.8 million of them have either temporarily or permanently closed in the second quarter because of the virus. That's a big number. This program really had overwhelming demand from day one, which is why you're seeing so many small businesses scrambling right now. An emergency program to help small businesses keep their employees on the payroll has run out of money less than two weeks after it launched. Running a small business in America has never been an easy job, especially if your small business is a restaurant or bar. The median income for a small business owner here in Maine, as of the latest numbers, was around $40,000 a year. This is Adam Zuckerman. So it's not, it's not really a way to become rich. And, and some people do you know, become very successful in this space, but that's not why they do it. 
they do it to be able to provide jobs for their neighbors, to um, really add value to their communities and to help create the fabric of their, their towns. He's the director of the Maine Small Business Coalition, which is a group of over 4,000 small business owners across the state. Small businesses employ around 57% of all workers in the private sector here in Maine. And we try to support them in doing that and sort of getting out some of the obstacles from their way, whether it's lack of access to healthcare or unfair competition from big corporations that try to have this tilted playing field. During his time at MSBC, Adam has seen policy after policy that contributes to this tilted playing field that he's referring to. For example, a lot of big corporations got major, major tax cuts through things like the GOP tax bill. And that's just not the case for, for a lot of small businesses. And it creates a kind of playing field in which they're struggling to, to really compete. So I think really like a lot of policies are essentially written by lobbyists of big corporations. A lot of these policies were not made for small business owners or for small businesses. But the PPP was one of those policies that was supposed to be written for small businesses. And lots of conservative senators, including Senator Collins, championed it as such. Hope is on the horizon for small business owners to help huge financial hardships caused by the COVID-19 pandemic. Susan Collins says she's working to keep Mainers paid and employed. Senator Susan Collins co-authored the $350 billion paycheck protection. And unfortunately, it's reduced the amount of funds that are available for real small businesses that, that actually need it. Around 44, 45% of the funds from the first round of the Paycheck Protection Program went to the top 4% wealthiest businesses. And that, you know, it was partly because of that loophole that Senator Collins created. I think what we watched play out in this last couple of weeks is what's wrong with it and where it hasn't gone right is that the very people who seem to need it aren't getting it. I don't think any company like ours understood that that was part of this. The loophole is one reason that small businesses got so little when it came to the PPP loans. But there's also the fact that banks were administering these loans. The money is coming from Congress. It is supposed to go to the people, but we're using banks as a middleman. This is Mersa Baradaran. We use them often in credit and payments and all this stuff. So for those of us who have enough money to have a bank account, have the access, have the resources, we also get free checking and you know, uh, these transaction accounts that, that banks offer. And for those who are not in this banking system, they don't get any of that. She's a professor at the UC Irvine School of Law and a leading scholar on financial services law. She's also developed a number of policies to address U.S. economic inequality and the racial wealth gap. Banks are going to choose their customers and banks aren't going to serve everyone equally because that's not what banks do. Banks are not required by law to, to offer everyone equal access. And so what happened with the PPP loans is that they ended up favoring their customers that were profitable customers. So these are bigger firms that rely on them for loans. If you give bigger fees to banks for doing bigger loans, the obvious outcome of that is that banks are going to prioritize doing bigger loans to bigger companies. Uh, and so I think that that was a, a critical mistake that ended up having big implications for how the program worked. This is Bharat Ramamurti. He's the managing director of the Corporate Power Program at Roosevelt Institute. And he also serves as a member of the Congressional Oversight Commission for the CARES Act. The commission's main purpose is to monitor and report on the decisions that the Treasury and the Fed were making with the half trillion dollars that the CARES Act set aside. And just a side note, because this interview took place in COVID times, 
The only available room to take an interview in Barat's house was also occupied by his sick and snoring dog. You'll probably hear him. These are enormous sums of money, and the way that they, the, the money is deployed has significant consequences, not just for the, the institutions that are getting support, but for the entire structure of the economy. So it's not just uh, sort of reporting on where the money is going. We also have a statutory obligation to analyze how those decisions are affecting the financial well-being of the people of the United States. From the very outset, Barat had concerns about how the Treasury and the Fed were managing the money that was set aside. And so my concern is that the Fed and the Treasury are contributing to what people are calling a K-shaped recovery from this crisis, which is essentially the folks at the top have recovered quickly or even are doing better than they were uh, at the beginning of this year, uh, while the majority of folks, uh, lower income folks, even middle class folks, are struggling a lot and the support that they've gotten from the government uh, was temporary and is fading. This actually just like further entrenches and establishes these already unequal patterns and, and really reveals what has always been the case. And as a result, what you're going to see, you know, in the months and years to come is even uh, larger divergence between a thin slice of folks at the top and everybody else. Everybody else means small businesses that don't have existing relationships with a bank. These tend to be minority-owned businesses. Like we see with PPP, they, they tend to have fewer sort of institutional connections that are important for weathering uh, these crises. And I'm worried that with this uh, response on the small business side, that's going to be another event that ends up sucking a lot of wealth out of Black and Hispanic communities because it's going to end up shutting down a lot of Black and Hispanic-owned businesses. And we're seeing, you know, statistics now like 50% of all Black-owned small businesses have been wiped out. This is Lenore Palladino. She's an assistant professor of economics and public policy at the University of Massachusetts, Amherst. Her research centers around the way that decisions are made inside corporations and between corporations and shareholders. We know that the smaller a small business was, the less likely it was that it was able to access the PPP. There were ways of Congress designing the program to get the money out the door uh, in a more equitable way. And I think that was a real failure of the program. This isn't the first time we've seen something like this happen. Back in 2008, $700 billion in tax dollars were spent bailing out the very same banks that helped cause the financial meltdown through bloated subprime mortgages. Bailouts that helped pay big bonuses to bank executives while middle-class Americans lost out bailed them out. But what was at the core of this and what I talk about in here were the families who just got slammed. You know, Easy credit. It was a record amount, $700 billion to rescue the country's failing banks. Weeks later, and with the economy still in turmoil, many are wondering what happened. The banking system was near collapse. The stock market in free fall. It seemed like government officials were as clueless as the rest of us. I worked on Wall Street as a corporate attorney at a bank for several years, and I was there sort of before, during, and post-financial crisis. This is Mersa Baradaran again. And so I got to really just see, you know, the sort of myths of market discipline and sort of capitalism firsthand and, and how those 
things didn't really hold up to reality. The entire banking enterprise is supported, linked to the federal government. Banks and banking would not be possible but for this massive structure of federal support. And so if that is the case, right, if the federal government supports and makes this all possible, then uh, we should get what we want from banks, right? We should have re-up that social contract and we want them to not harm us and not, you know, send predatory loans into certain communities and not, you know, defraud customers and not upcharge low middle income communities. Well, I think that there is a very clear pattern that recessions affect Black and Hispanic families uh, more harshly. Uh, that was certainly the case in 2008. And I am very concerned that that's the case again uh, in 2020. In part, it's because those families uh, have access to much less wealth than white families on average, which means that they, don't, they have less of a buffer to get through these hard times. Wealth isn't just, oh, I have money to spend on things, right? It's uh, protection from hardship. And a lot of uh, Americans are exposed, really vulnerable to uh, what has been uh, happening in COVID and what will, will be coming, unfortunately. On the tilted playing field, it should come as no surprise that the losers are predominantly black and brown. What is stunning is just how much the winners in this game won by during a global pandemic. New figures start to come out on the amount of money that the banks made. And by the way, we had to pay something like $15 billion in fees to the banks for running this program, which was a total waste. These loans are fully backed by the federal government. The banks are taking no risk at all in, in issuing these loans, right? If somebody doesn't repay the loan, um, the federal government covers that cost for the bank. So literally, we, we handed the banks billions and billions of dollars just for doing some paperwork over a few weeks. The same banks that, that basically took billions of dollars with one page from Paulson from Treasury at the time are the ones saying the documentation isn't clear enough for them. So what they're saying is I don't give a hoot about the small businesses. What I care about is whether or not I have enough paperwork. Now, many questions remain. What happens to these businesses that started the process with their banks? Do they get to stay in their place in line? What amount of aid would even be enough to service the nation's 30 million small businesses when this $350 billion went to just 1.6 million loans? Every dollar we spent on those fees could have gone to more support for people. $600 billion paycheck protection program that was supposed to help many of these businesses and their employees weather the storm. But is it working? As banks were making big profits on small business loans, businesses all across the country were closing their doors and laying off workers. By April 23rd, more than 30 million people across America had filed for unemployment. That's almost one out of every five Americans out of a job. This number has continued to rise. Consumer spending tanked to an all-time low. But that same month in April, the S&P 500 and the Dow had their best months since 1987. The stock market was rallying. Worst first quarter in a decade, best second quarter in a decade as well. I point out the fact that the 31% increase in the money supply is the greatest we've ever seen since World War II. With the S&P 500 on track for its best August since 1984, check out some of the biggest outperformers. Salesforce. Why, on the one hand, did we see so many businesses close and massive job losses one day, and the stock market soaring the next? What does it mean 
that we've consistently seen both of these trends throughout a global pandemic? Well, it depends on who you ask. But there are a few things at play that explain the disconnect between Main Street and Wall Street. In terms of our politics, we, we know that it's, uh, there's a reason why we hear from our leaders from Wall Street more often than we're hearing from the leaders of our auto companies. Um, so I think we, many of us have an intuitive sense that there's been this rise in the power of finance over the last couple decades. This is something called financialization. Well, it's kind of a long, wonky term. It's been used by academics for a number of decades now to describe uh, both the growth in size and power of the financial sector in our economy. The first way I would think about it in terms of the rising power of the financial sector is just look at how powerful big banks are. They play an outsized role in our economy in terms of the percentage of um, GDP they produce, in terms of a percentage of Uh, income that their executives and and employees earn. Okay, that's banks. But then there's a second way to think about financialization. That comes from a somewhat recent change in the behavior of large non-financial corporations. That's all the companies that make a good or provide a service. And the change here has been a little less obvious. There's been a steady shift away from this idea that the purpose of a business is to produce goods and services that consumers will buy. The idea is that workers will create these goods and provide these services and will therefore be paid well and have good long-term careers. It's actually uh, an entity that has obligations to to a lot of different stakeholders, right? To to its shareholders, uh, to its customers, and to its workers um, who who dedicate a big chunk of their lives to to working at that corporation. And, And I think that philosophy served the country well that's an earlier idea of what the purpose of the corporation was. And financialization refers to this change over the last couple decades where the corporation is now just seen as a tool to increase stock value and all those other stakeholders should be squeezed as much as possible in order to increase that stock value. So layoffs, uh, holding down wages, those are all now seen as you know, best practices by corporate executives in order to increase stock uh, market value as much as possible. This shift that Lenore is referring to has been taking place for close to half a century now. And some of the reasoning behind it comes from a theory that was conceived of by an economist named Milton Friedman. It's called shareholder primacy. The shareholder primacy paradigm and why many corporations... The shareholder primacy for as long as that's... what I think the people who attack shareholder primacy take shareholder primacy to be. It pretty much mirrored what Milton Friedman had said. The goal of a corporation is to serve its shareholders, period. Which was a new idea that the whole purpose of the corporation is to make as much money for shareholders as possible. And there really was no other reason for a company to operate. This theory of shareholder primacy changed everything. And the trouble with shareholder primacy is embodied in the name itself, primacy, meaning more important, it will always prioritize the shareholder's interests over everything else. This thinking has leaked into every part of American economic policy and corporate behavior, but it really began under President Ronald Reagan. What became known as trickle-down economics was at the center of Reagan's economic policy. Good evening. I'm speaking to you tonight to give you a report on the state of our nation's economy. 
But what it was really about was tying the hands of regulators and turning loose big banks and giant international corporations to do whatever they wanted to do. It was all about reduction of government spending, of the federal income tax and capital gains tax, and of government regulation. This widened the income gap, bringing on a windfall for those already in the money. It's like, well, if you don't want to be poor, just be rich, right? Choose to be rich and make better decisions. And once we do that, then we can keep enriching the rich uh, because we think, oh, well, they've earned it and their wealth will trickle down. There's a lot that happened under Reagan. But we have to face the truth and then go to work to turn things around and make no mistake about it. We can turn them around. But in 1982, there was a change in leadership at the Securities and Exchange Commission. And one of the rules that the new Securities and Exchange Commission passed was this obscure setting rule called um, Rule 10 to 18. And what it did is it started to protect companies from liability for market manipulation. This meant that companies could no longer be held accountable for trying to manipulate the market price of their own stock, which opened the door for them to start doing some previously questionable things like stock buybacks. That's where companies repurchased their own stock off the open market. Companies could, you know, they could merge with other companies. They could buy back their own stock. If you're a company and you want to raise the price of your stock, you're supposed to do it through making better products. You're supposed to do it through attracting more customers, being better than the competition. Your stock is supposed to represent the value of your company. You're not supposed to be able to manipulate the price of that stock. And you're not supposed to be able to manipulate it by taking some of the stock off the market, which by definition makes all the stock remaining more valuable because the pie has gotten smaller. And so each remaining piece is now worth a little bit more. When a company uses funds for a stock buyback, less money is available for other things that might benefit workers. Things like wage increases, upgrading technology, making workplace improvements, or doing research and development. Instead, with stock buybacks, money goes to shareholders, despite the claim from conservatives that the money will eventually trickle down to workers. But that's not how it has worked. And if you couple all the policy changes from the past decades with the trend of corporate executives also being paid mainly in stock, the disconnect between what workers experience and what happens on Wall Street becomes more clear. Companies have been able over the last couple decades, and particularly uh, the numbers have gone up quite a lot in the last couple years, to use this practice of stock buybacks to raise the value of their shares, even when um, the company itself wasn't producing something innovative. And so this idea that has been sort of embedded in policy, which is that businesses should seek maximum profits, and it's really led to, you know, massive privatization. We've experienced the consequences of shareholder primacy and trickle-down economics on steroids in the Donald Trump era. President Trump has just signed a historic $1.5 trillion tax bill. And with his signature, this will be the biggest rewrite in a generation of our tax code. Now, Republicans... $3.2 trillion in tax cuts for American families. The corporate tax rate, as you know, will be lowered from 35 to 21 percent. That means that more products will be made in the USA. The numbers will speak. While conservatives are still on the autopilot Reaganomics setting, 
Corporations have again used the cash windfalls from the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act to award dividends and buy back their own stock. And it's shareholders again that are benefiting from all the money that went to large corporations in the CARES Act through programs like the PPP. We have a lot of evidence over the last 20, 30 years that if you provide no strings attached support to big corporations, what they're going to do is take care of their shareholders and their executives first before their workers. And we've created the situation where in good times, the executives and the shareholders uh, do well first and the workers do well last. But then in bad times, the workers are the first to suffer. You know, they're the first to get laid off. And, and so there's been this incredible disjunction between corporate profits, which have gone up and up and up over the last few decades, and, uh, and workers' wages, which have been pretty stagnant for the last 20 or 30 years. Um, and, and the question, you know, where's all that money gone? The answer is uh, mostly to shareholders. When you look at how much companies are spending, it's a really significant amount of money. Companies spent $6.3 trillion, and that's with a T, not a B, trillion dollars, on stock buybacks in the 2010s. And if you look at the, the data on who are shareholders, well, about 50% of American households own no stock whatsoever, not even in a retirement account or anywhere else. And the top 10% of families own about 85% of all the shares. So when we say that the money has gone to shareholders, what we're saying is that the richest 10% have gotten a lot richer. Black households own about 1.2% of corporate equity. Uh, Latinx households own about the same ratio. So they're really not benefiting. And I think that that is another critical part of the framework of why um, shareholder primacy is, is so harmful to, you know, to the American people. And now, shareholder primacy and the resulting financialization of our economy have shown their true colors during a pandemic, where the stakes are much higher. But the outcome is the same as always. The top 1% walks away with all the winnings, while everybody else loses. We're, we're already seeing that, right? There's, there's a lot of examples of companies in the middle of this crisis um, laying off workers while still providing full executive compensation to their senior executives and continuing to provide uh, payouts to their shareholders, either in the form of dividends or in the form of stock buybacks. You have lots of companies like Walmart that pay billions and billions of dollars of their own uh, profits to repurchase their stock from the open market, while at the same time claiming they can't pay their employees uh, more than poverty wages, or they can't give leave to workers who are um, suffering from coronavirus. And so to me, one of the fundamental questions that we have to deal with going forward is how do we get back to an economy where when corporations do well, the people who work for those corporations do equally well. Uh, and, and to me, that is, that is one of the most important things that the government can do going forward is to get us back to that, that situation where uh, there's, a, there's a link between corporations doing well and, and their workers doing well. You know, these rules of how corporations make decisions are laws that in a democratic society can be changed. 
uh, norms can change, the way that people, you know, make prioritization decisions for their companies can and do change over the decade. After so much research into all the reasons why the playing field is tilted, Lenore isn't one to give up hope. A lot of rules could be adopted that would require large companies to have a federal charter and for corporate boards to act in the interests of all their stakeholders, not just shareholders. I create value for this company and therefore I am someone who should um, receive value for this company. And my participation is the best way for my company to stay innovative. Shareholder primacy is a flawed economic theory that's become a myth. It was conceived before we saw the rise of truly massive corporations or of presidents who are CEOs. The theory didn't take into account politicians who hold equity in large private companies. Private companies who spend millions of dollars advocating for public policy that benefits them and them alone. This theory just wasn't meant for the landscape we live in today. It becomes a self-reinforcing cycle where you don't need further inputs. It can just, you know, wealth can just accrue unto itself and um, it can expand because once you have wealth, uh, you actually gain more wealth. And if you don't have wealth, you um, lose lose the, the little that you have. And that's kind of how wealth actually works generally. And it takes a, a, a big sort of you know, intervening event like either war or big public policy programs to, to actually break up those patterns. And we have yet to, to do that. And it's gotten to the point where in a lot of different markets and industries, you know, there's just a handful of really big companies that dominate. And it's really, really hard for smaller companies to, to compete. I mean, that's what power gets you, right? Amazon and, you know, Walmart and, and these big sort of, you know, massive uh, corporations will, will just end up more wealthy. And that I think the wealthy will end up more wealthy because part of uh, what a crisis does is it sort of just intensifies and accelerates already ongoing trends. Big companies have gotten bigger. Small companies have dwindled, gotten smaller, and the poor have gotten poorer. In my view, if Congress wanted to pursue an actual pro-small business agenda, it would start by getting rid of all the advantages that big businesses have. Uh, right now in terms of, you know, rules that have been shaped specifically to protect themselves from competition. We need to recognize that the, in many ways, the best way to help small businesses in this country is to uh, uh, stop insulating big businesses from competition. To start that process, Congress would need to ban stock buybacks, put limits on shareholder payouts, and repeal and replace the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. There's a whole slate of policies that we would need, you know, including uh, wealth tax, antitrust, like real, actual anti-monopoly regulation. That's the kind of structural change that um, that takes a lot of effort, and and that has to then that recognizes that uh, it's not a win-win situation. In many cases, you know, you have to make a direct trade-off between small businesses and big businesses. And if you want small businesses to win, you're going to need to do some stuff that makes big business lose. What's required here is a rebalancing of power. I think we could use big reparations proposal to close the racial wealth gap. I think, you know, housing, down payment assistance, canceling student loans, a lot of just bottom up sort of New Deal era. It's not just one thing, you know, but a variety of different public programs. We could talk about postal banking, which is something that I've proposed, which would be a way to get, you know, the $1,200 checks, just send it through 
the payment system, just kind of take banks out as intermediaries. And two, I think just really focusing on who is hurting and who's being harmed and who needs it. Small business owners across America are already thinking about how to build something that benefits everyone. They're trying to re-level the playing field and make rules that are decent, fair, and equitable. This has been a major focus of the Maine Small Business Coalition. I think far too often it's seen as a zero-sum game, that either you're for workers or you're for small business owners, and they can never coexist. That's Adam Zuckerman again. And I think what we've found is that most small business owners are actually really rooted in their communities and really want the best both for their employees, many of whom become like family over the years, and also you know, for their customers and, and the communities that they really grow out of. So we try to advocate for policies that are really mutually beneficial. And I think at the core of what we do is the belief that there are policies that can benefit both workers and small business owners. The question at hand is whether this country is willing to support places that aren't institutionalized, that don't have a relationship with major banks, that don't have private equity backing. Places that only have stakeholders and not shareholders. Places owned by just a few family members. Places like S. Fernald's Country Store. My, my biggest concern is if we lose small businesses across our country like we already have, but if it continues in a bigger way, coming out of this is going to be a lot slower than people realize. If main streets are closed, if people are out of work, if, if these things don't exist, whether it be next spring or next summer or whenever we are back on our feet, you know, we've got a great community, like we're, we'll be okay. But there are those moments of just panic and dread where you really kind of get washed over. You know, the economy is going to hurt for this for a long time, I think. Made to Fail is produced by The Hub Project, Goat Rodeo, and Roosevelt Forward. From The Hub Project, executive producer is Laura Hatalski. Producers are Sasha Stone, Zach Price, Sophie Elliott, and Dan Crawford. Arkady Gurney is executive director. From the Goat Rodeo team, executive producer is Megan Nadalski. Producers are Shar Dreyer and Zachary Frank. Ian Enright is chief executive officer. From Roosevelt Forward, our senior producer is Steph Sterling. Our host, that's me, is Elliot Williams. Thanks to Sumner Richards IV, Marissa Baradaran, Lenore Palladino, Bharat Ramamurti, and Adam Zuckerman for sharing their stories and expertise with us. To learn more about how conservative policies have set up millions of Americans for failure in the face of a crisis, visit madetofail.org. Subscribe to Made to Fail on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app so you don't miss the next episode. If you like this episode, please leave us a rating or review and share it with your friends. And if you want to continue the conversation online, find us on social media. We're at Made to Fail on Twitter and Facebook and Made to Fail Podcast on Instagram. Thanks for listening.